Hello everyone, I'm Colin Ellis, and for 30 years I was a permanent employee of other people's cultures. What I wanted to know more than anything else during that time was how to create a great culture myself. So this year I wrote a book called Culture Fix, which is the world's first how-to guide for building great workplace cultures. And in this, the Culture Makers podcast, I get industry leaders from around the world to expand on the ideas I wrote about in the book and to get them to share actionable things that you can do to create a great place to work yourself. And remember, listening is good, but action is better. Hello, everybody. On today's podcast, I'm talking to Dominic Quattuccio, which I can now pronounce perfectly, thanks to uh, Dominic's teaching. Uh, Dominic was a former VP of sales over at the uh, Prudential Financial Group over in the US. And so we, we talk a lot about not only his experience within that particular organization, but also some of the work that he's done since then, because he now helps organizations to really raise their energy performance and help people change mindsets and habits, which I think is absolutely crucial if you're looking to create the kind of culture, you know, that really delivers and continually evolves. So we talk about lots of things as we often do in these podcasts. We talk about uh, behavior, we talk about followership and and what um, Dominic does, he gives us some insights into what he studied at university, which was really quite forward thinking because I you know I often feel that a lot of what people study in university doesn't properly prepare them for the work in life they're taught this kind of ideal vision of work and what that looks like when the reality is quite different we talk about uh, personal development becoming uncomfortable um, we talk about uh, LinkedIn a little bit Don was a, a bit of a trailblazer for, for LinkedIn and we talk also about uh, Prudential's program that they ran in-house to help to continually evolve their culture, which they called a university. So there are some fascinating insights on that, that, you know, that I think that people can listen, they can really uh, grab some ideas from and think about how do they replicate that. We talk about subcultures, we talk about change management, and we talk about this concept of busy, you know, that word that everybody uses. You know, it's like, that's the answer that people give you now when you ask them how they are. It's like, oh, how are you? Like, oh, I'm really busy. Like, but that's not what I asked you. Uh, so yes, so today's podcast is with Dominic uh, Quartuccio. We recorded this over in New York. So I hope you enjoyed today's podcast with Dominic Quartuccio. Hey, everybody. Today I'm talking to Dominic Quartuccio, is that right? Quartuccio. Quartuccio. If you do the Italian hands, it makes it 10% easier. To say. <laughs> yeah, love you. Quartuccio. It does. I feel like See? something like Goodfellas. Yeah. yeah you nailed it. <laughs> and we're here in, in New York. How long in New York? Is, is this home for you? Yeah, this is home. I've yeah. been I've been here for a decade now. I wow. grew up I grew up in New Jersey, uh, that mystical land across the Hudson River, <laughs> and uh, I grew up fearing New York City. Right, because as a kid, my parents were like, "That's a dangerous place." You know, whenever we'd walk, hold my hand, don't look at people. It was a totally, totally different place. And so it took me like 25, 30 years of my life to get over that. And then yeah. I was like, I'll move into the city and get that one year out of my system. And and I moved in. I got bit by the love bug of the city, and yeah. I've not been able to leave since. 
a uh, when we were driving here and, and it always surprises me when I'm driving in New York or when I'm being driven I'm not driving when I'm being driven in New York it's just how people seem to just abandon their cars and then the road just log jams and oh. people just driving around everything I'm like dude everyone's on their horns but it's not aggressive right it's just like hey I'm behind you you oh. should go now oh oh it gets aggressive <laughs> it gets aggressive hang out for a little bit longer yeah for the most part people use their horns here more than anywhere else in the city but here's the deal like when you're walking through the city the cars are not your problem it's the bikers people on your bikes because the cars tend to follow the traffic if it's a one way yeah, yeah. they're coming one way but you bikes come all different directions man they are ruthless so you are twice as likely to get injured by getting run over by a cyclist as you are by a cab or an uber so so in case this is the last podcast that i record <laughs> it was the bike that did it yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so you you were a corporate employee for how long yeah 15 years man 15. i uh so i graduated school in 2001 i went right into the the working where i was in cigna which was a health care company for a little bit of time in a human resources program and then I moved over to the retirement division that got bought by Prudential. That's and right. Prudential Financial was the company that I spent like basically 15 years with until I left in 2016 to do what you do, man, <laughs> which is to speak and to write books. And, uh, and I do a lot of coaching. I run men's retreats. I run women's only retreats. And, uh, yeah, it's been a pretty vibrant life for the past three years. And what, what did, you, did you go to college? What did you study? I went to the University of Richmond in Virginia. Yep. Our mascot was the spiders. Oh, okay. Only school in the country that has spiders as a mascot. <laughs> Not that anyone cares, but we, we all, there's a sense there of pride. There you go. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and I, in, in school, at Richmond, we had the only program in the country that had a degree in leadership studies. Wow, wow. So okay. like, I know you're, you're like, obviously we're here to talk about culture. What was fascinating about this degree was they taught you all the intangibles that most businesses basically expect you to have, but no one ever trains you for. So this whole degree in leadership studies was how to, how to learn how to lead during times of change, how to lead in diverse cultures, uh, how to be an amazing follower inside of an organization. And everything that we did was group work oriented. So, uh, you know, you went from being like an individual student. If you think about it, like being a student, it was always about your individual performance. And then every one of the classes we had was always about, here's a group project, which much more simulates what you do in the workplace. That's right. And for some people, it was jarring, right? Because it was like, I wanted to put my effort in, but now you had to learn how to influence others. So when I got into the working world, it, it, it had a legitimate... Like I felt I was years ahead of people who graduated from even Ivy League schools because they didn't know how to deal with people that's interpersonally. Right. Yeah, and that's quite that's quite ahead of its time, really. When was that? Like two early two thousands? Even before that, I think the, the the program was one of the reasons why I chose the school. Yeah, I think they implemented sometime in the nineties. So it was definitely far ahead of their time, and, and I benefit. It's funny, I don't really have a chance to talk about it much. I yeah. haven't talked about it since I went on interviews back in 2001. There you go. One. Yeah. yeah. Because, you know, I, I joke a lot about corporate leadership programs is they still don't ever give you the skills that you need, things like negotiation, things like communication, things like tackling diversity, things like cognitive diversity, things like inclusiveness, what it actually means. What they do is send you on a program where you get a book yeah. and you 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 kind of dispatched back into the world and you don't really know yeah. but that that sounds incredible yeah i mean i think one of the things about learning especially because i'm in the business of change i work with a lot of leaders and individuals in some of the most delicate areas of their life mm. stuff that you don't typically talk about inside the corporate walls 
And people think if they read a book, if they understand something intellectually, then they think that their job is done, yeah. right? They think that they get it. It's actually the very beginning of it though. Right? I mean, we intellectually understand that smoking is gonna give you cancer, that eating too much or not sleeping enough is gonna you know, not mm. work with your health. But all the time we, we blow past changing our behavior. So there's something that happens or doesn't happen between that intellectual consumption and the actual output of our actions. Mm. And there's a whole lifetime and history of behaviors and unconscious biases and other things that are in the way, fear mechanisms yeah. that stand in the way of actual change. And so when you kind of got into the corporate workplace and obviously you're better equipped than most from a leadership perspective, what did you see with regards to those behaviors? Was that a surprise to you having studied leadership that maybe people in senior positions weren't maybe practicing what you'd, you'd actually been taught? Yeah, I think the, um, the, bi the, bi the biggest aha when I went into the working world was definitely seeing how few people had the acumen of working in teams. Mm -hmm. People didn't know what it was like to be a, a, a good follower, like mm -hmm. even learning followership, because followership is often seen as a is a negative, especially yeah, in is, the American yeah. culture. But yeah. it's actually the one thing that we learned to to to, to like, <laughs> I don't know, not to overstate it, but to to be to have honor in being an amazing follower because yeah. that is the way that you learned how to be a great leader. Yeah, is like understanding what it took to be someone who followed instructions, who thought critically, who knew how to contribute from from like a, a leader from from also like a, a not just an individual perspective but what does the group need so that to me it seemed like it was in my dna when i showed up in the workplace mm -hmm. and it was shocking to me how few people seemed to have those skills yeah and then as i got more mature in my business you know my the, my, my career path kind of went i was in a human resources development program i wanted to move into the business lines i became i went to the sales organization became an internal support person then I became a salesperson, then I became a sales leader. And the thing that I saw, and a lot of employees see this, is this massive disconnect between what leaders are saying the business needs to do and then how the leaders are actually behaving. Yeah. Their words just don't match their actions. And the big one, you know, the big one you always hear is, we need to change. Right, like the business, the, the like the the dynamics of business is ever changing, and we need to be better. We need to be bolder. We need to be faster. And then those same leaders go back and have thousands of meetings. Yeah, yeah. They make like you know completely. Uh, I would say, not just risk averse, but just way, way too conservative, recklessly conservative decisions that don't allow their businesses to move quickly enough. And then their employees, when they hear that, when they see that, it drives them further into a place of uh, distrust with their leaders. Yeah. So that's a big part of the, the work that uh, I see needs to get done and that I do now. And, and which will have been built off kind of the work that you did in, in Prudential. So was that so, because you had a, and we talked before and you had a fairly rapid rise. I think you said you're a senior VP, fairly young. And, yeah. and, and did you just do, did you just make a decision that I'm going to do it differently? Well, you were like a contrarian, you know, I often talk about the fact that I kind of was a little bit out there, a little bit of a lone nut, you know, to quote Derek yeah. Sievers' TED talk. Is that kind of what you did? I had a great piece of advice early in my career from one of my early managers, His name was Robin Levitt. And she brought me into her office and I'm 23 years old. She's maybe 45, something like that, like, like senior VP. And she says, your job, Dominic, is to take 80% of my job and to do it yourself. Like my job description, take the 80% and the 20% that you can't do because this is what they pay me for and this is my two and a half decades of experience, then I can spend 100% of my time doing that stuff. And she was like, if you can learn this, 
in every job that you are in, like you will rise rapidly. And so that was like my, to that point, yeah. to your point, Colin, it's like, I took that on and she, she was amazing in allowing me that, that latitude to do that. I learned quickly. I was sitting at tables that most of my junior counterparts weren't sitting at yeah. because like I was doing the work. And when I, when I moved that over into the sales organization, I was supporting the number one sales guy when he saw that I was willing to take off 80% of the work that really wasn't selling. You know, it was all of the RFPs and it was all of the pricing and all of the, the compliance stuff. He was glad to, to say, here you go, kid. Yeah. And, and so that allowed me to know the business at a deep level. And when the clients were calling, the prospective clients, they would talk to me. I was having conversations at the age of 25 when, you know, typically a 40-year-old person would be having those conversations. Yeah. So yeah, at the age of 27, um, I, I was given a promotion to be the Northeast sales leader. Uh, the next youngest person doing the job at the time in my company was 42 years old. Wow. But that was a combination of having someone who was leading me, having the faith in me, yeah. and also like having the trust and, and, they, and they invested time in me to, to nurture that. And it, it was a symbiotic, like it worked well for all of us and yeah. that always served me well. Which is awesome, and I, I, I don't think there are enough what I would call role model leaders in that way who help and elevate younger staff in, in, in the way that they should. And you know, I often find that with culture makers, there's usually someone in their career that just made the difference. So you actively went looking for responsibility. And so when I talk about culture makers, this is one of the traits, it's one of the things that they do. And obviously that's then led you into another line of work, which we'll get to in a minute, but you went and you said, okay, well, I'll have that, I'll take that, I'll take that. And you looked to, to kind of, become uncomfortable yeah. in order to grow, right? Because that's the, the very essence of change, whether it's cultural or personal, is we all do our best work when we just feel a little bit out of our comfort zone. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's that little thing of, I ask people this, if, if they don't have, like, do you have something on your horizon that makes you throw up in your mouth just a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Whether it's personally or professionally, and if you don't have that thing on your horizon that just makes you gag a little bit, then you're playing smaller. Like, you're playing a little bit too small. And I remember, like, one of the turning points in my career, and this was also a great example of how the culture of Prudential really helped me to spread my wings. I always had this entrepreneurial spirit, mm. right? I, I, always, I always wanted to do more. And way back in the day, um, I was one of LinkedIn's first million users. Oh, which, really? Which, wow. which doesn't really mean like first million. I mean, there's a lot of people that were in there. I think it was like 627,000, <laughs> but now they're what, like 350 million Ooh. users? Like I was an early adopter. I, I was one of the first people who was using LinkedIn to build my network for sales and and also to use to research for people who uh, we would go and present to, right? And I, and, I, and I went to one of the people who ran our sales conferences. I said, I have a 30 minute presentation I'd like to do to the organization and share this with everyone because I don't think anyone's doing this. And they took the risk, they put me on stage. It was non-traditional. And I went up there and I shared this new platform, LinkedIn, that could be used to build your business. And it was really well received in the audience. And I think I was 28 or something like that at the time. And what that ended up doing was I became the, the young, edgy technology guy. <laughs> and then marketing found out about me. And then they brought me out to, to do all of their meetings with LinkedIn. I had a chance to meet, um, I think it was Reed Hoffman that one when I was there. We got to go into Google's headquarters. And now all of a sudden, I had this opportunity to, to spread my wings and become much more diverse yeah. in terms of my ability 
because the organization saw something and they allowed and they invested in me. Awesome. Also culturally, Prudential built an entire organization called Top of the Rock University. Our, our logo was Gibraltar, the Rock of Gibraltar, Top of the Rock. And they had a regular set of programs that invested in all of our people, consultative selling skills, how to manage your time, how to work with teams, uh, diversity and inclusion. And these were like real programs that offered you opportunity to learn. If I didn't have those, yeah. they would have lost me. I would have left maybe seven years before. Yeah. I ended up leaving and some people ask that question. This is, I think, something that maybe a lot of leaders that you deal with yeah. worry about is if we invest in our people, we open the doors, we show them what's on the outside, that our good people will leave. And it's like, man, I would have been out of there so much faster yeah. if they weren't providing that. Because I was getting calls from headhunters, yeah. but like there was no program in the industry that was as good as theirs. And I stayed for a while. And so did they leverage that? You know, you talk about LinkedIn. And I think a lot of a lot of organizations, a lot of cultures, what they do is they buy a tool because they think they should or because someone else is using it or they get a pitch. Whereas you actively went out, saw how it could benefit. So you kind of brought it inside yeah. because you saw its potential. And then they leveraged that and, and the knowledge that you had of it. Yeah, they made it grassroots. Right? Yeah. You know, before before going out and spending a lot of money, they were like, okay, here, here it's working for someone here. Yeah. And how does it fit within the framework of compliance? Because I was in financial services. LinkedIn has a whole bunch of things like, you know, from a compliance perspective. But they've said, okay, as long as it's inside those walls, let's see how we can just leverage this grassroots movement. And there were a number of people who jumped on it, right? Yeah. There, was a, there was a number of people who just, that's not my platform. They didn't want to go that way. That yeah. allowed them the flexibility of doing it their way. Yeah. And it worked for us. Which is great. And because that what you get then is these subcultures who say, okay, well, this is what works for us. And as long as we hit our targets and everyone's happy, that's good. This is how it works over here. And obviously, as, a, as an organization, you get a great organization culture when you get those great subcultures working. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and the affirmation that there could be subcultures. Yeah. Right? That, that there wasn't any one way that had to be, that it had to be done. There were certain ways... That culturally, it was like from an integrity standpoint, it all had to be done this one way. Yeah. But in terms of like how you were productive, as long as you were meeting your number and you were doing it with integrity, then they, they supported however you wanted to do it. That's fabulous. Yeah, it was great. That's so good. And so let's talk about change management because it's something that you do now. Yeah. Uh, so obviously it was something that you had exposure to in when you were at Prudential. Um, and now you help all other organizations what get over themselves. Because you know, <laughs> there's definitely one thing that I want to talk to you because you, yeah. you wrote one of the best blogs I've ever read. And I'm deadly serious. I'm not just blowing smoke. Uh, with, with you, you talked about productivity and busyness and said oh, it's lazy, yeah. busy, and productive busy. Yeah. So what was the genesis of that blog? Because I, I remember reading it and thought, wow, that's the blog that I, I wanted to write that blog because everyone's busy, right? Nice. Yes. Nice, yeah. So we live in the era, the golden era of lazy busy. That's it. Yeah. yeah. And I, I picked up this term from reading Tim Ferriss. Yeah. Tim Ferriss wrote, wrote, has written a number of books. Uh, it, I think it came from the four hour work week, which mm -hmm. I read about 10 years ago. And one of the things that he said in there, he said, indiscriminate action left unchecked over a period of time is just lazy indiscriminate action like if you're constantly in action just doing things doing 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 it's just lazy because you're actually not thinking about what you're doing and does it serve the overarching purpose of what matters to you does it serve the business itself and i see i work with people in burnout rich environments who are doing who are doing who are doing who are incredibly uncomfortable 
taking time to pause and to actually reflect on what it is they're doing. And I just see a whole, I see ecosystems of lazy busy. And, and, and here's the thing is, so many people who come to me talk about wanting it to be different, right? They all say, oh, I'm busy, I'm drinking from the fire hose, it's never ending. I have a bit of a breather around the holidays in December and then it goes January and I'm back to December again and I don't even know what the hell just happened. Yeah. But what are you doing differently? Yeah. You know what I mean? And that is just lazy. And I, I know that because I've been in that place too, right? And, I, and, I, and I'm not, I don't say that from a place of judgment. I say that from a place of hoping to wake you up to where are you maybe being lazy busy in your life. And so what I write about in my book, which is called Design Your Future, you need to create three steps. You need to create an awakening, right? An awakening around where you're doing all of this lazy busy behavior. You need to disrupt the pattern, that's step two. And then you need to design a new way of doing it. Um, but if you can start to see those areas where you're just responding to emails all the time, saying yes to everything, taking every phone call that comes your way, taking every meeting that ends up on your, you know, in your inbox and, and you're just doing and doing and doing, you will perpetuate yeah. a state of lazy, busy into perpetuity and not much will change for you. That's right. And so the very essence of change management requires you to make some really tough decisions yes. and let some things go, right? Yes. So there, there's a reason why status quo persists. And it's because there's payoffs. Hmm. There are payoffs of staying stuck in status quo. Let's take the lazy busy thing. Lazy busy, you've conditioned your nervous system to equate doing with safety. Right? It's yeah. like, oh, oh, okay, if I'm, if I'm doing, then I must be important. If I'm doing, then I must be getting things done. I'm checking off boxes, even though my to-do list never seems to get any shorter. If people see me doing, then they, they must think that I'm important and I'm, you know, like, th that, that they can validate me and that makes me feel good that I'm important. Okay. The payoff of staying stuck there not only is rewarding your nervous system for what it's come conditioned to expecting, but there's a big identity piece there. And this identity of, I'm the person who gets things done. I'm the person you could reach at 6 a.m. or at 10 p.m. Like I'm committed to the cause, right? I'm the person who's there before the lights are on and after the lights are shut off. And there's like this, there's this pride that people take in it even as it's slowly killing their, themselves. Mm -hmm. And there is no balance in their life. And there are a lot of leaders who are running around with that freneticism that then filters down in their organization and it's and it's a state of anxiety yeah it's anxiousness and, and one of the things that i've started to talk about is we've become we've become so hooked and addicted to anxiety being the thing that leads to our motivation and it's almost like what opiates are doing for people who are feeling pain mm -hmm. in the short term right like anxiety can motivate you in the short term in the long term, it leads to things like breakdowns, yeah. burnout, burnout, yeah, right. Opiates, which is a huge problem here in the United States, is a thing for people to get over pain, and it works like gold in the short term. In the long term, there's addictions and there's breakdowns and That's there's. Right. So, I, I I'm saying to, to to anyone who's listening is like this state of anxiety. If that is the fuel in your system. It can help you get things done in the short run, but it's going to it's going to cause crashes. And organizationally, if, especially if you're a leader, if that's what you are trickling down, like you have to think about you as a leader magnifies everything at like a tenfold level yeah. down. Yeah. If you send one email, it turns into ten emails down below you. If you're a little bit worried, it turns into ten times as much worry down below. So as a leader, it's really imperative for you to get your stuff straight 
yeah. and to embody a different level so other people can have the permission to feel like that too. Awesome. That's just fabulous. So Dominic's book's called Design Your Future. Um, and he talks about this and way more. If you get the opportunity to hear him speak, you should do it. I mean, we're going to go for lunch now and I can't wait. Um, where, can, where can people find out more about you, mate? Yeah. So my professional site for the corporate work is DominicQ.com. DominicQ.com. And then the deeper work that I do with both men's groups and women's groups, and this is personal stuff. So if like we, we, we talk about some adult issues, so if your sensibilities are delicate, don't go to this site, but it's called <laughs> DoInnerWork.com doinnerwork.com and if you love books I have free downloads in there like book lists of 18 books every business leader should read 12 books every man should read and I have a list called 15 books written by women that every man should read on that site it's called doinnerwork.com forward slash books awesome get on all of that immediately thank you so much for welcoming me into your home and uh, for joining me on the podcast it's a blast man Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. If you've enjoyed today's show, please share the link with your colleagues and friends or with your connections on social media. Better still, why not keep the conversation going and join our community of culture makers who share information from around the world on how to create a great place to work. Join us at www.culturefixcommunity.com.